Welcome to You Masterclass, the film podcast written and produced by students in the film studies program at UMass Amherst. I'm Jackie Salcino. And I'm Emily Coe. Hope everyone is having a great summer so far. It's been beautiful lately, but also very, very hot. Yes, it has. The amount of daylight we've been getting has been giving me the much needed serotonin and vitamin D after being cooped up all semester. Anyways, I'm so excited for today's episode because we're featuring your episode. <laughs> yes, woo! So today we're featuring our very own Emily Coe's episode that she produced during Professor Daniel Pope's film podcasting course. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so this episode that you're about to listen to is on The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro. During the film podcasting class, we came up with our own podcast concepts, and my podcast is called Made Me Cry, where I talk about films that made me and many other people cry, and I investigate why and how this particular film moved audiences. So exciting. So how did you come up with this concept? Well, I wanted to find some sort of theme that would allow me to talk about a variety of films because I really do love a lot of genres and I thought talking about films that made people cry would be great because sadness isn't necessarily the only reason why someone cries, right? It could be happiness, inspiration, or even an emotion that we can't really put into words. But crying is an indicator that the film was emotionally evocative. So that's where the Made Me Cry podcast comes in. I try to figure out what is it about the film that brings out these emotions? You're absolutely right. It's an incredibly genius concept, and I can't wait to listen to it. So let's get into it. Passing the mic back to you. It's senior year of high school, winter break. My parents and I were doing our tradition, watch two or three films in a row at the movies. It was back in like 2017, and I don't remember the second film we watched, but I do remember diving into the world of Guillermo del Toro for the first time with The Shape of Water. The princess without voice. Or perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. I have so many memories attached to this film. First of all, I remember going back to school feeling super excited to talk about this movie. During lunchtime, we were sitting at the table and I brought it up. Some of my friends expressed their love for it. Some of them also asked, isn't that that weird movie with the fish man? They're not necessarily wrong. I think this just speaks to how vivid Del Toro's imagination can get, and we'll talk about that in this episode. But once it hit 2018, my friends and I planned an Oscars viewing party. It was pretty intense because some people love The Shape of Water, but some people just thought it was super weird. Nevertheless, it was a great season for The Shape of Water, taking home awards for Best Original Score, Best Production Design, and Best Director. And it was finally time to announce the Best Picture Award. And the Oscar goes to... The Shape of Water. 
can you tell we were excited? <laughs> that was a short video I took at the party. I honestly kind of cringe listening to that clip. I think just listening to the audio is fine and sufficient, but in case you were wondering, the camera's shaking and a bunch of people are also cheering in the back. But now that I'm looking back on it though, some of my friends do not look happy. I think they were probably rooting for Lady Bird or something, I don't know. But looking back on this, I asked myself what made me and my friends who also love the film so invested in the success of this movie? What made us want to scream when it won Best Picture as if we had been a part of the production? How did the film move us to this point? Welcome to Made Me Cry, the show where I not only talk about films and TV shows that made me and many other people shed tears of sadness, laughter, inspiration, happiness, etc, etc, but also investigate how the film moved us to tears. We didn't cry for no reason, the film did something to us. Let's find out what. And of course, spoilers are ahead. The Shape of Water is a fairy tale set in 1962 during the Cold War. Eliza, played by Sally Hawkins, is a mute woman who works at a government lab facility in Baltimore as a cleaning lady. She's close with her neighbor Giles, played by Richard Jenkins, and Zelda, who is also a cleaning lady at the lab, played by Octavia Spencer. Eliza discovers that a new creature has been brought in. It's half-man, half-amphibian, who is kept in a mysterious water tank. The government workers call it an asset. America would be able to get ahead of Russia with this sort of research. Today we are receiving a new team and asset here in T4. This is Dr. Robert Hofstetler from our sister facility in Galveston. Now, I don't want to bolster or overstate the matter, but uh, this may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. Other major characters include Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, who was in charge of this project, and Dimitri, a scientist, but also secretly a Russian spy, who goes by Dr. Hofstetler, played by Michael Stuhlberg. Eliza almost immediately forms a connection with the creature, and the story takes off from there. Before we get to really talking about the film in depth, though, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the 2018 Oscars. So before the 2018 Oscars happened, the hashtag OscarsSoWhite was trending again because people were talking about the lack of nominations for non-white people, non-white filmmakers, actors. But in 2018, we saw the first black screenwriter Jordan Peele win Best Original Screenplay for Get Out, and Greta Gerwig became the fifth female director to be nominated for Best Director. There was also this wholesome moment when Frances McDormand asked every woman to stand. She said, look around, ladies and gentlemen, because we all have stories to tell and projects we need financed. But despite these really great wins and nominations and the acknowledgement of gender disparities in the industry, it doesn't mean that Oscar So White is over. We clearly still have a lot of work to do. So let's unpack The Shape of Water winning Best Picture. I know you heard that video of me screaming in support for this win, but I think my opinions have since shifted a little bit. There's this really great article from Slate Magazine written by Aisha Harris, and she talks about how The Shape of Water winning Best Picture was, quote, a disappointingly safe choice, unquote, for the Academy. The film deals with embracing the other. The main characters include a mute woman, a black woman, and a gay man, so there are obviously these themes of oppression and othering that are relevant today. 
But what Aisha Harris's article talks about is even though Del Toro's film does feature these characters, he has all of these really nostalgic, romanticized references to old Hollywood films and older music. And there's even the scene where Giles tells Eliza to turn off the TV when there's something about the civil rights movement that pops up. And he tells her to switch to something else, like an old Hollywood movie. Oh dear God, change that awfulness. I do not want to see that. I do not want to see it. That's better, that's better. Oh, look at Betty. Oh, God, to be young and beautiful. You can hear the reporter talking about what seems to be some sort of protest. And immediately, Giles says that he doesn't want to hear it. And right when Eliza changes the channel, Betty Grable is on screen dancing, which makes Giles very excited. And he rushes over to the couch to join Eliza. And so it seems as though there are moments where the audience is distanced from these issues. This is what Aisha Harris is saying. And these issues were prominent in the 60s and are still relevant today. So there's this concern of Del Toro's film not really addressing sufficiently the racism, the sexism, the oppression that was happening in the 60s, but also still happening today. It seems as though the Academy was attempting to show its support for diversifying the Oscars, or at least trying to choose a film in response to hashtag Oscars so white, and people's acknowledging that there are racial disparities, gender disparities in the film industry. But I have to agree with Aisha Harris here that The Shape of Water was a disappointingly safe choice. The film, although it does deal with themes about embracing the other, connecting with the other, it literally dances around sufficiently addressing these issues. And when I say literally dancing around, I mean almost all of the clips that Del Toro includes from old Hollywood movies are dance sequences. So when Giles tells Eliza to change the channel... And he rushes over happily when Betty Grable is on the TV. You can see how that is actually, and I guess metaphorically, dancing around talking about these issues that are prevalent in the 60s and prevalent today. So I think the Academy oftentimes shies away from choosing films like Get Out, which is a much more challenging and explicit account of racism. And Aisha Harris's article talks about this as well, how the Academy often does not choose films like Get Out, and it chooses films like The Shape of Water, which is ultimately a very uplifting story with a happy ending. It's based in this fantastical world, so it's easier for us to not really be confronted by our reality, even though Del Toro does say that this film is supposed to to be a direct reference to the world we live in today. That's not to say that Del Toro's film should have been this more explicit story about racism and oppression. I think he does address it in some moments in this film. There's a scene where the waiter at the diner is very homophobic towards Giles and is also very racist towards a black couple. Strickland is also very racist towards Zelda. So we can kind of see the power dynamics that exist in the 60s and that could potentially lead us to confront the reality that we're living in today. Del Toro has spoken about this as well. He calls his film political, but also recognizes that it's not explicitly political. Oh, well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's funny enough, it's a very political movie. You know, I, I very deliberately made it a, a movie about politics, but not 
in a frontal way, it's more oblique, but it is about uh, coming together in a time where people are trying to keep us apart and tell us that we're different, you know. So it's difficult to evaluate whether or not Del Toro's film should have had more references to the sociopolitical landscape of the 60s, but I think concerning the Academy's choice, I agree with Aisha Harris that it was a disappointingly safe one. She also talks about how the Academy has this tendency to shy away from narratives about racism that come from a Black perspective and that are way more challenging and not Hollywood-esque and do not necessarily end in this Hollywood happy ending. This is a really great article if I haven't said that enough already. I will make sure that this article is linked in the description, so definitely check it out. I think contextualizing the awards is really important and just important to mention. It doesn't mean that I don't like this film. I still really do love this film. The Shape of Water is ultimately a film about connecting with the other. Del Toro has talked about how this film is about empathy. The original title was A Fairy Tale for Troubled Times. Del Toro is recognizing how the story applies to today. When Del Toro won Best Director for The Shape of Water, he spoke about his experience with being othered, starting his speech with, I am an an immigrant, like Alfonso and Alejandro, my compadres, like Gael, like Salma, and like many, many of you. And in the last 25 years, I've been living in a country all of our own. Part of it is here, part of it is in Europe, part of it is everywhere. Because I think that the greatest thing our art does and our industry does is to erase the lines in the sand. We should continue doing that when the world tells us to make them deeper. Just from that speech, we can see how The Shape of Water is a deeply personal film for Del Toro. He has talked about how he has had this idea, or at least the desire to create a story with the fishman creature since he was six years old, ever since he watched the horror sci-fi film Creature from the Black Lagoon. And the monsters look very much alike, but of course the story is very different. Del Toro is such a creative mind, and we'll be talking about that next. Guillermo del Toro is a Mexican filmmaker. He is really imaginative when it comes to creatures and monsters. Monsters are kind of his thing. And I think this stems from his background in special effects makeup. He spent a lot of the 80s working as a special effects artist before making his first feature film, Kronos, which is a gothic tale about an antique dealer who becomes immortal after a beetle attaches itself to him. Del Toro worked on other films like Hellboy based on the comics by the same name, Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth uses the historical backdrop of the Spanish Civil War and incorporates fantasy, so it's kind of similar to The Shape of Water in that there's this historical background and then a fantastical element. Pan's Labyrinth premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and got him a lot of recognition at the Toronto Film Festival as well. The film won Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, and Best Makeup and Hairstyling at the 2007 Academy Awards. You might have seen the wrinkly, really scary monster who sticks his eyeballs into his hands and then opens his palms to reveal his eyes. Super creepy, but really amazing special effects makeup. You can also picture Abe Sapien from Hellboy, another great example of awesome special effects. Abe is a bluish, light greenish, human plus amphibian creature. 
Under all of this costume is Doug Jones, who also plays the amphibian man in The Shape of Water. Del Toro also talked about designing the awesome amphibian costume. I mean, we, we took three years to create and design the suit. Uh, we, it's all physical. We have digital retouching for the blinking and micro gestures, but it's an invisible technique. What we did is we had mechanized the gills and all the servos are in the back, <laughs> in the little uh, structure in the back, and they really move. And the eyes are uh, almost jewel-like. It takes weeks to create because you layer them and you sculpt them, you layer them in acrylic, but you paint every layer. And you need to let it dry and cure because otherwise the layers separate. And, and, and you see them and it looks like a living opal. They have opalescence, they have blues, grays, film, you know, they have iridescence, magical. You can see how much thought he put into making this amphibian suit. And he uses practical effects. And his use of digital effects is really only to enhance the costume and the movement of the actors. And like he said, the costume and the way it moves is physical. And this is pretty common to a lot of his films. Quick side note, I watched A Crimson Peak the other day. And what an awesome film. I fell in love with it. I could do a whole separate episode on that. But even in that film with the ghosts... They were real actors with prosthetic makeup on, and Del Toro used digital effects after to make them more into like a ghost creature. But you can see his background in special effects makeup creeping up in a lot of his films. So, a lot of people cried during The Shape of Water. Here are some comments responding to a scene where Eliza is trying to explain her bond with the amphibian man to Giles. One person wrote, I actually cried during this part. The frustration and desperation was very profound. Another person quotes Eliza. When she said he's happy to see me every time, every day, that line makes me cry like a baby. And there are three crying emojis. Someone else also used three crying emojis and wrote, God, I'm literally crying. Even someone who hasn't seen the film said, I haven't watched the movie yet, but the scene makes me cry. And cry is in all caps. You might have noticed that the quote-unquote evidence that I used to prove to you that people have indeed cried or at least have had some sort of emotional reaction to this film comes from things like YouTube comments. In other episodes, I've used online reviews, not from critics, but just from people who have seen the film. There's the potential for a multi-screen experience here. People might watch a film and record their reactions on their phone and or engage in some kind of live conversation online. Think of live tweeting, which is used for a lot of promotional events for the release of a new episode of a TV series, for example. I think having multiple screens in front of you definitely could take away from the immersive experience and maybe make it harder for people to form their own opinions about the film, but I think it could also possibly make people notice things that they wouldn't have noticed just by watching the film themselves once. It's kind of like watching something with your friend but talking while the film is running. I think most of the comments that I use for this episode come from people who have watched the film and are revisiting a specific scene because they know that it affected them the first time through. 
So with social media in this specific case, we have the opportunity to get the inside scoop of how other people looked at a scene. Whereas in a movie theater, the lights are off and you're not really focusing on other people and their reactions. And even if you are, it's really hard to see other people's faces. But these sorts of comments give you that access to how people felt the first time through, as if you are watching them react in the movie theater. So that's, I guess, my justification for using these sorts of comments. I think it's also just really fun to see how other people reacted and reflect on the scene in a casual way. So yes, a lot of us cried, but why? I think the film is super immersive and it aims to be immersive through the sound, particularly at the beginning, and through its filmmaking in general as well, and we'll talk about all of this a bit later, but I think the sort of immersive nature of this film is what made us feel more connected to the characters, made us more invested in their journey, and made us root for them more. So this ability to feel empathy was kind of amplified by the immersive experience that the film provided for the audience. Let's start with the opening scene. The film starts with Alexandre Desplat's enchanting melody. He's described it as arpeggios that flow like waves. We're not hearing a full orchestra. We're hearing a flute, some whistling, an accordion here and there. It's a little bit mysterious. And Desplat did this intentionally because he wanted to have room for more climactic moments later on in the film. But here, we start at the bottom of the lake. There's this beautiful teal-green filter as we're slowly let into this opening. It's one shot as we float through the hallway and into Eliza's apartment. I love the way that the film starts. Desplat has spoken about how he wanted to compose a score that is immersive and places the audience underwater. The score has almost a blurry effect to it, especially during this scene because we're just introduced to this environment and you can even hear some of the bubbles. Again, it's not a thunder of string instruments, but rather a set of delicate yet curious notes. So we're kind of wondering, what is this world that we're in right now? And for this gorgeous opening scene, they used dry for wet, which is a technique where you film a dry set but you use smoke, lighting, and fans to move clothes and hair to make it look like everything and everyone is floating underwater. So Eliza is floating near the ceiling, which means that Sally Hawkins is essentially held up by strings at this moment, and her dress that's kind of waving in the water is thanks to a fan. And then after this, they add the bubbles and the fish in post. Here's Del Toro talking a little bit more about the opening scene and this dry for wet technique. What we did is we knew that the opening scene is such an operatic theatrical scene. It's one shot, right? One shot. And we needed to make you feel you were underwater. So what we use is a very old theatrical technique called dry for wet. We fill the stage with smoke. We shoot at a high speed. Uh, we put everything on wires, actors, props, furniture, Everything is on wires, and then uh, you shoot it with uh, fans, hitting the clothes and the fabric, so it moves like it's underwater, and it looks like it's underwater. And then the actors pantomime that they're underwater, and you add bubbles digitally. <laughs> There's a seamless transition from the riverbed, which is a digital space, to a real set. Dan Lautzen, the cinematographer, has mentioned how this scene was the hardest to film, and I think it totally paid off. 
I also think this scene establishes two things. One, this film is a fairy tale that's made obvious later on by Giles' narration that you listened to at the beginning of the episode, but we are literally stepping in, or maybe I should say swimming into a new world. We're given this long one shot to get our bearings a bit. And the green filter. It's interesting because you would expect a blue filter. The green filter makes it look really mossy, as if algae has been growing for a while at the entrance of this building. It's as if algae has been growing at the entrance of this story. It's saying once upon a time without explicitly saying once upon a time. The second thing that the scene encourages us to do is let go of everything we know about a fairy tale. Giles mentions a fair prince, a princess, and a monster, and we probably already have images and preconceptions of what these typical figures in a fairy tale look like, but this is the world of Guillermo del Toro. Like I said before, the setting of this film is 1962 during the Cold War. During this time, there's a lot of anxiety and fear surrounding nuclear world war, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Despite it being the 60s, the ideologies of the 50s still persist. The all-American family with a suburban lifestyle, picture a nuclear family. And Strickland embodies these values. He's Christian, has two kids, a loving wife, a relatively secure job, he lives in the suburbs. Doesn't sound like much of a monster. But let me introduce you to Strickland by playing this clip so that you can get an idea of what kind of character he is. So in this scene, he runs into Eliza and Zelda who are cleaning the men's bathroom, and he's carrying his thumb baton, and he just starts peeing. It's a very uncomfortable scene. Look, don't touch. That lovely dingus right there is an Alabama howdy-do. Molded grip handle, low current, high voltage, electric shock, cattle prod. Name's Strickland, security. Clement security. Huh. Oh, no, no, a man washes his hands before or after tending to his needs. It tells you a lot about a man. He does it both times. Points to a weakness in character. Throughout the scene, Strickland is talking about his stun baton. He's probably talking about it, kind of bragging about how dangerous it is, and we'll later learn that this is what he uses to torture and abuse the amphibian man. There's some phallic symbolism here, he's talking about it while peeing, it's just ultimately referring to his toxic masculinity and his need to be what he thinks a quote-unquote man should be. Del Toro is essentially flipping everything that we know about fairy tales and going against our assumptions and making Strickland the monster of the story. And Strickland is truly awful, if you couldn't tell already. He sexually harasses Eliza, he's racist towards Zelda, he abuses the amphibian man, he just tries to enforce his dominance in any situation. Del Toro also takes inspiration from the Beauty and the Beast narrative, but he also flips this on its head, as we'll see later on. Strickland is the epitome of what's wrong with the 50s and the 60s. The 50s saw a boom in the economy after World War II, people were moving to the suburbs, there were TVs in their homes, the nuclearization of the family was happening, so there was this optimism about the future. But if we look more closely, there's conflict. The Cold War, the start of the civil rights movement, 
Del Toro said it's not a movie about 62. It's a movie that tells you that racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is all alive now. And it never went away. At first, I was having a little bit of trouble seeing this. I was having trouble seeing how this film, which gives such an immersive experience to the viewers, how this film also encourages viewers to think about the issues that we face today. I realized that it was through its treatment of the future. So a lot of the times when the future is mentioned in this film, it's paired with the color green or teal. When Strickland gets a new car, it's a new shiny teal car. It's the quote-unquote car of the future. Giles eats green key lime pie that he got at the restaurant where he thinks the waiter and him have this sort of flirty relationship. Giles also paints a plate of green gelatin, and later on Strickland's wife tries to give him some green gelatin. Green seems to be this motif for the future. But if we examine the things that are happening around these green things, they're not progressive at all. Strickland drives a teal car, but he's racist. Giles eats green key lime pie at the restaurant, but the waiter is homophobic towards Giles. So the film seems to be doing this really interesting thing where they're placing the audience in the future. So these people in 62, they have these green things and they're saying green is the color of the future. They're really optimistic about the future, but we know as people in the future that, again, racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is still alive now. So the film doesn't take us out of the immersive experience to remind us of the issues that are prevalent today. This goes back to the question of does Del Toro have to have a more explicit treatment of oppression that was happening in the 60s? I think I'm going to say no because the characters in this film do face oppressive situations. Strickland is extremely racist towards Zelda, and he sexually harasses Eliza and fetishizes the fact that she's a mute woman. The waiter is extremely homophobic towards Giles and racist towards a black couple, but we have already established a link between Strickland and the teal car and the waiter and the key lime pie. So these green objects, which are supposedly the objects of the future and supposed to represent the future, we have these oppressive situations happening around these objects. So we're reminded that yes, again, I'm going to say it again, racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is still alive now. I think this is Del Toro's way of making sure that we're not disconnected from this immersive experience and making sure that we're not confronted with the issues of today by disconnecting us from the story. He finds a way to keep us connected to the story, but still addresses the issues that are problematic today. I do think, however, it was a little strange that Giles told Eliza to turn off whatever was happening on the TV about the civil rights movement and turn on an old Hollywood movie instead. I thought this part was a little jarring because it directly erases or neglects what's happening in the 60s. But then again, I think this could show a commitment to the character. Giles is probably not a social justice activist, and he probably doesn't want to hear anything about it. So it makes sense that he would turn on an old Hollywood movie instead, and maybe Del Toro isn't necessarily endorsing this at all, he's just staying true to what the character might actually do. So I think this is an ethical question of, 
If we want to set up our story in a historically accurate environment, how do we blend history and a narrative style? What are the ethical problems that arise from that? I keep seeing a lot of articles about how Del Toro keeps referencing old Hollywood movies and how he doesn't address or sufficiently address the issues of social justice. And I agree. I agree that there seems to be an issue here. But I wish we kind of took a step back and defined, well, what is an ethical treatment of a historical period? If that historical period is just the backdrop for our story, how do we ethically address the events that are happening and are we required to? These are some interesting questions that I didn't expect that this film would bring up. So it seems as though Del Toro is engaging with these issues of oppression through his characters, and there's the fact that we feel empathy for many of the main characters who are marginalized, not only during the early 60s, but also today. Eliza is a disabled woman, Zelda is a black woman, and Giles is an older gay man. But what I like about this film is that they're not essentialized to these identities. Yes, they do face obstacles at some points in the film that stem from oppressive attitudes surrounding disability, race, and homosexuality, but they're characters who are more than that. I know this film got some criticisms about character development, but I think I have to disagree. In terms of disability representation, I can't be the judge of that, but I will be talking about what some disability scholars and writers have to say. But in terms of making characters multidimensional, I think this film succeeds in portraying them as individuals with desires and fears and frustrations who want to be seen and heard. In this clip that I'm about to play, Eliza is trying to convince Giles to help her save the amphibian man and help her sneak the amphibian man out of the facility. Eliza is using sign language and Giles is responding to that and repeating what she is saying. Oh, he's alone. Oh. Now, does this mean that whenever we go to a Chinese restaurant, you want to save every fish in the tank? So what if he's alone? We're all alone. The loneliest thing you've ever seen. Well, you just said it, right? You just said it. You called it a thing. It's a thing. It's a freak. I can understand you. Calm down. God, calm down. All right, I, I will repeat it to you. What am I? I move my mouth like him. I make no sound like him. What does that make me? All that I am all that I've ever been brought me here to him. See, you're saying him. It's a him now. It's a... You just hit me. Oh, Eliza, let go of me. I'm looking. I'm looking. You've never hit me. You can feel Eliza's frustration in the scene, and Giles is just not convinced. Not only because it's illegal, but... He feels as though they can't really do anything, given the way in which they're treated in society. What are we? What, what are you and I? Do you know what we are? We are nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing. I'm sorry, but this, this, this is just, oh God, it's not even human. 
There's a medium close-up basically throughout most of the scene. This is a really intimately tense conversation where Eliza doesn't feel seen or heard even with her best friend. Eliza communicates with her hands, but the shot expands to a long shot as she bangs her hands on the walls to get Giles' attention. This is a really big moment because she really puts her whole body into saying, if they don't do anything, they're not humans either. This is powerful because there are moments where Eliza says, no, that's not what I said, repeat back what I'm actually saying. And this makes Giles really listen to her. This is really interesting because Giles is the one who is narrating Eliza's story. His voice starts the film and his voice ends the film as well. So it seems as though he's become this voice for her because she's physically not here to tell her story anymore because she's in the water with the amphibian man. So Giles is kind of continuing her legacy, her story. So it's really important for him to go through this moment of realizing I am not listening to Eliza. I am not listening to my best friend. She is not feeling seen and heard, and I am contributing to that. And it's important for him to go through this and for us to see him go through this because now we know he is somewhat of a reliable narrator, someone who would try to do Eliza's story justice. Giles eventually comes back and agrees to help. I have no one, and you are the only person that I can talk to. Now, whatever this thing is, you need it. So, you just tell me what to do. So I think witnessing Giles coming to empathize with the amphibian man because he cares so much about Eliza, that was really touching to me. And I think relationships are really important in this film and people helping each other and coming together to ultimately save the amphibian man. So speaking of empathy, we're going to be talking about this half psychoanalytic, half psychological approach to this film. Stay tuned. There's this really interesting journal article, and it's about the Shape of Water's connection to depth psychology. Depth psychology deals with trying to uncover the unconscious and the conscious. So it's a blend of psychoanalysis and psychology. And I want to talk about this article because I think it takes a really interesting approach to looking at the film. And I think it can show the power of this film and the power of film in general. So this article was published in an eco-psychology journal, and it's trying to explain how the film actually has the ability to uncover our unconscious and conscious beliefs about nature, and it has the power to start a psychological transformation, aka change the way we think about nature and our relationship to it. So the article cites a lot of Richard Tarnas's work, who is a historian and a professor of psychology and philosophy. So he said, to undergo a psychological transformation and the way we think about nature, we should think of ourselves as the universe with the soul. So imagine yourself as an ensouled universe. 
Imagine there are two kinds of people who come up to you. The first person is condescending and immediately thinks of you as inferior. They believe that the universe is there for their quote, exploitation, self-enhancement, motivation, unquote. But the second person is different. They come to you with curiosity and they believe in your ensouled nature and intelligence. As the article states, quote, this person's approach is based on empathy, aesthetic delight, intellectual curiosity, and trust becomes an act of love, unquote. So when we do this, we understand better and develop empathy for the other. And we understand how we can know the intelligence and the insolent nature of the natural world. So to Tarnas, the first suitor is Western science. He says humans have this desire to dominate nature, which they consider to be inanimate and unintelligent. This sort of view has caused this to become disconnected with nature and has, quote, fuel the drive for power, profits, materialism, and technology above everything else, unquote. Tarnas also explains how the Judaic and Christian traditions that separate God from nature believes in this idea that man is made in the image of God and further separates humans from nature, which makes humans somehow superior to nature. Does this sound familiar? This sounds a lot like Strickland. I feel as though Strickland really embodies this idea of taking a quote-unquote rational approach and thinking that he's superior to everyone else. Hell of a lot bigger than I thought. Ugly as sin. You know, the natives in the Amazon worshipped it like a god. Doesn't look like much of a god now, does it? Well, they're primitive, sir. You know, they would toss offerings into the water, flowers, fruits, crap like that. Then they tried to stop the oil drill with bows and arrows. That didn't turn out too well. <laughs> He's bleeding. So in this clip, Strickland is talking about how the amphibian man doesn't look like a god at all because, you know, he's bleeding and he's hurt from Strickland abusing him. And Strickland is also kind of making fun of the people who believed in this creature to be a god. So Strickland has been continuing to abuse the amphibian man. He scoffs at the idea that the amphibian man could be possibly a god. And there's this moment of vulnerability at the end, though, when Strickland realizes that the amphibian man is actually a god, and we'll get to that later. But he does look at the amphibian man and also Eliza, Zelda, Giles as inferior. Again, he wants to enforce his dominance wherever he goes. It's interesting because he mistreats the amphibian man because he doesn't think that the amphibian man has a soul or emotional intelligence, but... Eliza, Zelda, Giles definitely do have souls, Strickland knows that, and yet he doesn't treat them like humans. So Strickland does fit the description of the first person who comes up to the universe. The claim here is that if we expand this desire to stick to empiricism and include intuition and imagination in our thinking, we can become much more empathetic to nature. I wanted to mention this article because I think it shows Strickland's exploitative, quote-unquote, rational approach to the amphibian man. But then we also have Eliza, Giles, and Zelda who sees the amphibian man, and they truly are the second type of person that comes up to the universe. But there's this really interesting character, Dmitri or Hofstetler, who is a scientist and a Russian spy, 
After Strickland gets the approval to vivisect the amphibian man, Dr. Hofstetler is really adamant about not killing the amphibian man. He wants to continue on with his research. He had secretly caught Eliza interacting with the amphibian man a few times, and he realizes that the amphibian man is intelligent and capable of emotions. He develops this empathy for Eliza and the amphibian man. He tries going to his Russian superiors to delay the vivisection, but all they tell him to do is kill the amphibian man just so that the Americans can't get to study it. So Dimitri ends up helping Eliza, Giles, and Zelda, and he uses the poison that he received to kill the amphibian man to kill one of the guards instead. He's committed to science, but he opens himself up to empathy and acknowledges the soul of the amphibian man. So I think Dimitri actually really embodies the expansion that Tarnas is talking about. He opens himself up to imagination, and I think it's interesting here that a commitment to science is not necessarily being completely mechanistic and rational. The amphibian man does have a soul and is intelligent, and Dimitri does have the scientific integrity to acknowledge that, unlike Strickland. Whether or not this depth psychology is legitimate, it's still interesting to think about the power that film has to evoke empathy and to initiate this sort of mental process that helps us empathize with real things in our real world. Speaking of this appreciation of film, I mentioned that Eliza and Giles' friendship moved me. They're both lonely people who keep each other company, and they connect over old Hollywood movies. I think The Shape of Water is a love letter to film itself. There are so many references to old Hollywood films, and the first time we are introduced to Eliza and Giles together, they're watching Bojangles teach Shirley Temple the stair dance. Watch this. It's Bojangles. Stair dance. Oh, that's so hard. Cagney did it. Different, but beautiful. <laughs> Eliza also lives above a movie theater, so this is a film that knows the power of cinema, and the characters themselves are engaging with movies and movie music. There's a scene where Eliza dances in the hallway, and this speaks to her romantic, dreamy personality and her love for the fairy tale of old movies. So not only are we feeling connected to the characters through this film, through the immersive experience that this film provides for us, the characters in the film itself are also making connections with film. So Eliza brings over records and plays I Know Why and So Do You by Glenn Miller, you can hear it right now, and the music transitions from diegetic to non-diegetic, and it plays over this montage of Eliza interacting with the amphibian man, showing him different pieces of music, including some from Benny Goodman. The editing is interesting as well because there's this cross-dissolve transition when she's looking at the water in her bathtub, and then it transitions to the water boiling the eggs that she brings for him, and then it directly just cuts to her giving him the eggs. And this transition refers to her sexuality. She has this routine every morning, she wakes up, she masturbates in the bathtub to an egg timer, and then we have this transition from her bathtub water to the boiling of the eggs. So clearly there's a sexual connection here, and so she's courting him with eggs, and then she dances, and they're looking at each other, and it's a musical moment. It's as if they're really in a musical. 
Del Toro has mentioned that he wanted to originally film this in black and white, so I'm wondering if that's why he brings in so many old Hollywood movies. He wanted to reproduce an old Hollywood movie originally, but then that meant he would get less funding, so he ended up just doing color, but I think it turned out beautiful. So in that scene where she's dancing with the amphibian man in his tank, she's dancing for him, Dr. Hofstetler catches her. She doesn't notice, but he's half in the shadows, he's sort of in the darkness, but also sort of in the light. And this just shows that his role is ambiguous. He ends up helping her escape with the amphibian man, but also he rats them out to Strickland later on in the film. There's this other sequence that has this really interesting blend between non-diegetic and diegetic music. So Carmen Miranda's Chica Chica Boom Chick is playing as non-diegetic music when Strickland buys his teal car. He's the man of the future. And then there's this montage of Eliza sort of figuring out her exit routes in preparation to sneak the amphibian man out. And then Giles is also preparing a fake laundromat car to sneak himself in. And then it cuts to Giles' TV and Carmen Miranda is actually on there singing Chica Chica Boom Chick. And then it becomes background diegetic music as Eliza and Giles discuss their plans once again. I thought that this was a really good way to keep the audience immersed. It's this really interesting blend of we know what the characters are experiencing as we're listening to this music. So in the first example of how the song by Glenn Miller transitioned from diegetic music to non-diegetic, we are experiencing the character's experience of that music when it becomes non-diegetic. But in this case, we are experiencing the music first and then the characters experience it afterwards. So there's this really deep connection between us as the audience and the characters in the film. And I think the film tries to mirror the character's experience, which makes it easier for us to empathize with them and feel invested in what they want. I love that the songs are a part of the soundtrack. It really places you in Eliza's mind as she's actively pursuing what she wants. So as she's figuring out her plan and everything, it's the music that she loves that plays. The beauty and the romance that she finds in old Hollywood films are being manifested in her own life. And because this music is actually used, we become connected to her and invested in what she wants. So all of these old Hollywood references culminate to this dancing. And this dancing is sort of bizarre. It's that moment where all of the lights around you are off and you only see the person whom you love, that sort of vibe. So she's dancing with the amphibian man. It's kind of like this dream sequence. It's black and white, and it's almost a direct replica of one of the dance sequences from Follow the Fleet with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And there's this jazzy arrangement of You'll Never Know that plays. And the scene is definitely kind of bizarre, like I said, because she's dancing in this really beautiful gown and there's this fish man right next to her. But I think this is Del Toro's way of sneaking in that black and white look that he wanted originally. But I also think this gives us insight to Eliza's mind. She loves old Hollywood movies and finally that love and romance that she felt, that beauty is coming into fruition in her own life. And she can finally dance with a person that she loves or with the fish man that she loves. And 
There are some issues that disability scholars and writers take with this film, especially because she starts singing. We're going to be talking about that real soon, so stay tuned. We're back and we're talking about that black and white scene that looks exactly like a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance sequence, but disability scholars have noted that the scene is problematic because Eliza actually starts singing. I'll read what they wrote in an article published in Disability in Society. They wrote, quote, She enters into this black and white daydream when she is experiencing extreme pain from the throes of a seemingly impossible love and the lack of capacity to express it. I imagine most of us have been there. The sequence has been highlighted as one of the more problematic aspects of the film, though, and we didn't all find it equally appropriate, unquote. So the problem here is that Eliza seems really free in the scene. She seems really content. She's dancing with the amphibian man. She's dancing with the love of her life. But the scene only seems to come after she's able to sing, after she's able to speak again. Del Toro has expressed that it's supposed to convey that the creature sees beyond Eliza's physical abilities, but some disability writers have expressed that this sentiment makes some people with disabilities feel less human. So there are criticisms here about the way that disability is represented. There have been criticisms about the dance sequence and also the scene where Eliza expresses that she is incomplete, but some disability scholars have clarified. They write, quote, Whilst this reference to her less than wholeness has been interpreted by some as a problematic statement in a world where portrayals of disabled women as the object of non-disabled people's desire are scant, the issue is not so clear-cut. Eliza refuses Strickland's advances, for example, and the fantasy genre of the film adds further complexity. Disabled writer Kim Sauter suggests that we don't want to see films which romanticize our otherness, but ignoring the social and cultural causes of othering would present alternative difficulties. Eliza's statement about incompleteness can also be seen as an angry criticism of disabilism, as a desire for recognition. Rather than demeaning them both, her choice of love for being defined entirely by his difference adds to the beauty of the story and sends a strong message about the validity of disabled people's relationships." Unquote. The film definitely stays committed to not conforming to the Beauty and the Beast narrative. At the end, the amphibian man doesn't turn into a human, but rather uses his unique power that he has only because he is an amphibian man to save Eliza. And there's this moment where Strickland says, Fuck. You are a god. This is his moment of vulnerability. The ending scene is beautiful, and it mirrors the first scene because we're underwater again. Eliza and the amphibian man are reunited. Eliza's scars on her neck turn into gills, and we have Giles's narration again. If I told you about her, what would I say? That they lived happily ever after? I believe they did. That they were in love? that they remained in love. I'm sure that's true. But when I think of her, of Eliza, the only thing that comes to mind is a poem whispered by someone in love hundreds of years ago 
unable to perceive the shape of you. I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere. So this film really opens up the fairy tale book and closes it at the end with Giles's narration. And I think it was such an immersive experience to watch this film. And I think that's why we were so connected to the characters and that's why we were moved and emotional. The immersive experience that this film attempts to provide the audience really ties in well with the title of the film, The Shape of Water. The water has no shape because it's all around us the whole time. And that's what characterizes the immersive experience that I and many other people felt while watching this film. The camera constantly is moving to mirror the movements of water, and we enter the story immediately underwater. So we're kept in this environment of water until the end of the movie, and it's super immersive. And I think that's why me and many other people felt invested in these characters and felt emotional when they were emotional. And of course, this film is not without its issues. There are really interesting ethical questions that come up about using a specific historical period as the backdrop for your story, and also these questions about disability representation. So a lot of food for thought here. This is one of those films where you make new discoveries every time you watch it, and the reason why we were so moved really lies in the filmmaking. Thank you for listening to the Made Me Cry podcast. I hope you enjoyed this investigation into how this film moved us to tears. Stay tuned for my next episodes. I'm Emily Ko. Thanks. What an incredible episode. I think my favorite part of your episode is that you cover such a critical and relevant discussion happening in media today around the ethics of setting a fictional story in a historical context. With period dramas on the rise and the continuing discussion around representation in media, this topic is something we'll be hearing a lot more of. Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely an ongoing conversation. Thanks so much for featuring this episode, Jackie. Of course. The U Masterclass podcast is written and produced by students in the Film Studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, created by Christian Buckley in 2020. Our theme music is composed and performed by Corey Shia. Podcast art designed by me, Jackie Celestino. For U Masterclass, I'm Jackie Celestino. And I'm Emily Coe. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>